0: Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? Father, we are, we're so thankful for who you are. We're so thankful that we have an opportunity uh, to live in a, in a country where uh, our worship is not illegal and that it is um, uh, an experience that we can personally engage in, but also corporately. And we praise you for a government and a country that supports that. Father, we're thankful for our leaders in both state and local and federal governments who are making decisions right now that are affecting our lives and our our country. We pray that they would make decisions based upon your truth and not popular opinion. Father, I pray for everyone in this room this morning who uh, has um, come and and is desiring to worship and to listen to your word. I pray that you would quiet each of our hearts. We're coming in from a busy week. We're coming in from some challenges health-wise. We're coming in from just work and, and perhaps we're tired from that and just need, need something to refresh our souls. And I, I pray that the sermon this morning, the message from your word, would be your words to us and not mine. That it would be a, a blessing to uh, consider the truth of your word and apply it to our lives. We think of those who cannot be with us because of illness. We think of uh, Joanne. Just, we pray that you'd be with her uh, as she's recovering From her uh, knee surgery, we pray that that process would continue and that she would be able to uh, be back with us soon. We think of the Overson family with the passing of Dwayne, and uh, we just continue to bring comfort there, uh, be with all the the funeral memorial arrangements that are being made. Uh, May it be a time of encouragement, especially in the midst of uncertainty. Pray for others who are not able to be with us. We pray you bring them back safely, help them to maintain their faith in light of what they're going through, and may they just trust in you for all things. And Father, as we open your word again, I pray that these words that I speak would not be my words, but, but yours, and that you would help me to hide behind the cross so that I can clearly um, show Christ to, to us. Thank you again, Father, for this time, and I pray as we engage in your word that we would apply it to our lives, so that we can leave today—not just saying it was good to fellowship and going to be in your house and be with your people, but we would also say, more, most importantly, that it was uh, that we leave our lives changed, just a little bit more like Jesus Christ. For it's in His name we ask all these things. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, I have a question for you this morning, and, and hopefully this makes sense. How many of you have ever been on a helicopter ride? I see you raise your hands, a few of us. I have never been. Uh, I, I think my fear of heights would prevent me from going on one. I do have a fear of heights, and, and airplane, airplane rides are tough for me at times. Uh, and I think a helicopter ride would be even worse because the distance between you and the ground is even uh, less of an issue than if you're in an airplane. But if you've ever been on a helicopter ride, you know that the, the purpose of a helicopter is for you to get the big picture of where you're going. Uh, you are, you're able to see, perhaps if you're flying over the Northlands here, you're seeing all the trees and the beauty and the nature that's around you. And perhaps if you're, if you're fortunate, you see some animals that are, are going around if you're at a, at a right height. But it's hard for you to see the little little bits and pieces of life that go on if you're in a helicopter ride. You get to see the big picture. You don't really get to see uh, the intricate parts of life that are happening below you. You get to enjoy the scenery and the whole big picture that's in front of you. And so just like a helicopter ride kind of gives you the big picture, I, I want to take a big picture view of the book of Ephesians this morning as our our, our introduction to the book. So what we're going to do is just kind of... Kind of go over, I mean, we're going to fly at times, but I want to take a big picture view of this book of Ephesians before we dive into it so we can get a better idea of what's going on here. And my challenge for you this morning, by way of a proposition, a plan for us, is that I would like us to embrace God's plan for the church. Embrace God's plan for the church. God has a plan for the church. And how he wants it to function, and we find that in the book of Ephesians uh, as we we endeavor in it. I I want us to bring us to some history uh, and background of the book so we can understand it better. I love history, and and so we'll delve in that just a little bit here. Ephesus is located on the western coast of what is now modern-day Turkey, uh, and the biblical phrase is Asia Minor, uh, and that was where it was located. It was one of the largest trading centers in that part of the world, And contained numerous structures, uh, most notably the temple to the goddess Diana, uh, which was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, uh, and was truly something that was uh, visited by people and stood back in awe of that structure. Uh, The city's religions were many. Uh, but most recognizable is this worship of Diana, which was uh, very prevalent in the life of the Ephesian church, of Ephesus. Uh, she was considered to be the goddess of fertility and childbirth, so that was kind of her thing. Uh, that was her dedicated uh, time. Uh, but her worship may have included uh, prostitution in that effort, but there's much, little known to the worship practices at that time. But it was considered to be a huge uh, worship emphasis there. For the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Ephesians, he, he visited there early in his second missionary journey. You can find that in Acts 16. Uh, he did not stay long in that area, but stayed for a while, but then left to go on to other uh, towns. But left, uh, as we are familiar with, Aquila and Priscilla to work in that city. And, and you know that Aquila and Priscilla were very vital in that ministry. Uh, even to the point of taking Apollos, who came in later and was familiar with the teaching of uh, John the Baptist, and and they took him and taught him about the scriptures, and he eventually became a powerful evangelist in that area. The second time that Paul visited Ephesus was during his third missionary journey, and that was a a period of of over two years where he did miracles, preached the word of God, and encountered opposition. Uh, Acts 19 really sums that up. Uh, his ministry of two years in Ephesus. Then his one final interaction with the church uh, personally was in Acts 20 when he met with the Ephesian elders before going on to Jerusalem, which eventually began his round of prison uh, sentences. And he encouraged there. It's one of the most heartfelt appeals that Paul has in his ministry to church leaders there in Acts 20 to um, to shepherd God's flock, to be aware of the opposition that they were going to face, and to encourage them in their effort. And so as we go through the book, again, we're going to take a big picture look. I have seven questions that I'm going to ask and answer in the same breath that will help us to understand uh, the book as a whole. The first question from verses 1 and 2 is, what is the purpose of the book of Ephesians? What is the purpose of the book of Ephesians? And the answer is, the purpose of the book is to instruct the church of Christ. You'll notice there in verses 1 and 2, Paul is writing to the church. He calls himself an apostle by the will of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. And so God used Paul to write this book uh, to further his purposes for the church. You'll notice that Paul did not write his own message, but Paul instead was a messenger of Christ and inscribed the message that God had for the church. And God has a specific message for the church, doesn't he? Uh, we can read this in Matthew 28:19 and 20 when Jesus comes and gives his, his disciples, his apostles, some instructions as they're about to go out. He says, go and, and teach all nations and baptizing them, making disciples. That's what the church is to do. So there was specific instructions that Jesus gave at that time. And, and Paul is giving, continuing that pattern of giving specific instructions, God's message to the church and Paul is ordained of God to do that, and, he, and as he is just demonstrated by the will of God, pointing that this is what God wants to happen in his life at this point in time. Paul is in prison at this time. He doesn't have the opportunity to go to Ephesus, but he instead takes time to write them a letter as God has pushed him in that, in that effort to fulfill a desire that God has for the church. You notice also that from the last part of verse 2 that God is speaking to those who are his to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Jesus Christ. This is not written to random people, but this is written to a specific group of of believers who are in Ephesus, who are in the surrounding areas. Some uh, consider this to be a a letter that was to be circulated among the churches, and that probably was so, but first it's targeted to the, the believers in Ephesus and to encourage them. And notice how God describes them, they are saints, they're holy ones. They're set apart for his service. They're not random uh, people to God. They are specific people to God. They are, they're special to him. They are saints. And they are faithful in Christ Jesus. Or the, the idea that there's their, faith, their faith is in Christ. Just like their holy status because of who they are, so their faith is evident because of who it is in. And the book of Ephesians is specifically designed to challenge believers in their faith. Why? Because their faith is in Christ. And that is to whom they lean and depend upon. That is to whom they have their faith. And you notice also that as we think about the purpose of the book, uh, God is pouring out his blessing on them. Verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul desires a couple of things for the believers. He desires that grace be poured out upon them. And grace is that unmitigated favor of God that is not earned. It is, as, as one has put in the acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. It is grace that is flowing down on us. And, and that is a major theme in the book of Ephesians, as we'll see as time goes on, just the grace of God uh, is so prevalent in this book. And, and I hope as we, we engage with this book over the next several months, you will see how God is gracious to you and how God is gracious to me. And Paul starts off the book by saying, grace to you, God's riches to you, as you read this letter. And also, God desires peace for them. As Paul writes, Paul, peace from God. It is is the word in Hebrew, shalom. It is that inner state of peace that when everything around us is falling apart, we can still be at peace. And isn't that something that people want today, right? People want peace. People want security. People want stability in their lives. And Paul here by just saying peace from God points that only the peace that comes from God will provide that. That his peace is what counts. And at the end of verse 2 is, uh, the, the, the blessing comes from both the Father and the Son. There's this joint effort that both um, parts of the Godhead are involved in. And we'll see that again as, as we continue in the book of Ephesians we'll see how both the Father and the Son are intricately involved in our lives. They are seeking to bless us. They are seeking to pour out their grace upon us. It's not random. It's deliberate. It is a deliberate act of pouring out grace and peace upon us, and that is God pouring out our bless- His blessings to us. So the purpose of the book of Ephesians is, 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 a, is for the instruction of the church. Now we're going to kind of get into the bigger sections here. Second question that I ask of the book, and the book answers is, what is salvation? What is salvation? Answer, salvation is a God-ordained operation fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's chapter 1, verse 3 through verse 23. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to kind of, again, take the big picture here. But this this section of Scripture lays out that Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills the acts of redemption. You will find in this section of Scripture the continual phrases, in him or in Christ. And Paul uses those references, as we'll see, to point that salvation is accomplished in Christ. The reason you and I are here this morning is because of Christ. It's not because of something you've done or I've done. It's because of what he's done for us. And the mere fact that he has done this... uh, these things for us, the salvation for us, is to be rejoiced in. It's all about him and his work. Colossians chapter one, verses 13 through 14 emphasizes as well that and Paul writes there in verses 13 and 14, "He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into his kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins." And I hope as we will dive into this section next week that you will see it is Christ who guides our life and one who has given us salvation. Another highlight of this section is that his children are adopted, holy, and loved. Notice, uh, if you would, verse 5 of chapter 1, having predestined us unto adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Again, we'll dive more deeply into it later, but... This picture of God doing a mighty work on our behalf, taking dead people and making them living again. This is all God's work, not ours. His children also are redeemed for a purpose. God always has a purpose in salvation. God didn't save you and I just so we could sit in a pew on a Sunday morning. God has saved us for a purpose Notice verse twelve that we who first trusted in Christ should be to do the praise of His glory. There's a purpose there for us, we get forgiveness, revelation, unity, reward, and praise in salvation. These are something. These are the things that God wants for us and desires to accomplish in our lives. Notice also in this section also highlights this idea that His children are forever His. His children are forever his. The presence of the Spirit assures the children of their place with the Father. That's verse uh, verse 13 and following, talking about the down payment, the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of his purchased glory. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. All of this is to bring praise to God, and we'll see that as we go forward. And in verses 15 through the end of the book kind of highlight the, the, the idea that it is a necessity for his children to understand the wonderful salvation that God has done for us in Christ. And as, as we look at this, this section of Scripture and as we consider it, I want us also to see how this is to result in God's praise that God has done a wonderful act in saving you and me. It doesn't matter what age you got saved. I know there are many of us in this room who at an early age came to faith in Christ, and that's great. And I praise God for that. That's kind of my story too. I was saved at the age of five. And so I didn't really get to go through the, 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 some of the horrific stories that people go through, that, the events of life that bring them to the point that where they need Christ. But regardless... God's salvation is a wonderful act, and He deserves praise for it. It's all about him. So who is salvation about? It's about God. It's God ordained for his purposes. Third question I want us to ask, and again we're, again, we're flying here. How is man saved? So, so chapter one verses three through 23, kind of address the issue of salvation as a whole, talking about who, who's involved, what is involved. But how is man saved? Answer, man is saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Ephesians two eight nine very familiar verses to us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any one should boast. For we as work and should in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul lays out in this section of Scripture that dead people cannot be children of God. He talks about being under God's wrath, And being without God, dead in our trespasses and sin, verse 1, he paints a bleak picture for us to help us remind ourselves that's where we once were. That's where we once were. We were dead without Christ. Dead without Christ. But grace has saved the children of God. Are you thankful for God's grace this morning? God's grace is what brought you here and allowed you to be here, but it is God's grace that has saved you. But God being rich in mercy, verse 4, chapter 2, God has been gracious to you making and me, making dead people alive, placing them as in positions of honor, displaying them as trophies of his grace. So Paul talks about how is man saved? It's by grace, through faith alone. And I hope you highlight that as you have opportunity to talk to people about the Lord, that you don't just highlight, the, yes, the salvation that God has given us, and it's a wonderful thing, it's, it's rewarding, chapter 1, but I also hope you highlight the grace that allows us to be saved, that comes to us and gives us that new life in Christ. Grace is the gift of God, creating people to be more like Christ, And enables them to do the good works that God has called them to do. We all hear about good works today, don't we? We hear about what people are doing and helping in their communities, making them better. Those are good things. But ultimately they cannot be the things that please God because that those people need Christ and need salvation because the salvation those who are his are enabled by God to do good works that please him. Fourth question I have for us this morning: Who comprises the church? Who makes up the church? You know, we're we're here at First Baptist, International Falls. What? What? Who makes up the church? Who makes up the church that we experience? Answer: The church is made up of Jews and Gentiles together, so that God may have a dwelling place, accomplishing His internal purposes. This is a bigger section that this theme uh, comes across in chapter two, verses eleven, all the way through chapter three, verse twenty-one. And Paul highlights a couple of things. He, he highlights first that Christ worked in Gentiles to bring them into the family of God. Gentiles, that's you and I. We're not Jews, unless you have a little bit of Jewish in your... I, I don't have any Jewish in my background. But unless you are part of the, the Jewish, Jewish nation, uh, we're known as Gentiles, outsiders, people who do not have God. And and, and verses 11 and following in chapter 2, The Apostle Paul paints a bleak picture without God. uh, Notice um, verse, verse 11, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And Paul points to this bleak picture for the Gentiles to help them to realize that you had nothing. There was nothing that you had that could have attracted Christ to you, but you, you were without him. The only way you could be with him is to convert to Judaism, and there was a whole process for that, and there was just lengthy things that you had to go through. You stood outside looking in. But yet God through his son brought the gentiles from being outsiders to being insiders to being part of his family. Christ abolished the physical and spiritual connections distinctions between Jews and gentiles. So now he has become the cornerstone upon whom upon which the new body grows through the work of the spirit. God takes Jews, gentiles and makes them one. So now they're one new body in him. He takes them and makes the church. Notice also that, that, that God ordained this truth to be proclaimed to all the Gentiles. Chapter 3 talks about Paul's side of things. Look at verse 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Paul uses this section to highlight this mystery of Jews, Jews and Gentiles coming together in one body. And he, said, he says, I have a privilege to be a part of this. That is the goal that God has given to me. That is the mission that God has given to me. So Paul embraces that and helps Gentiles to see that what God has done has been truly of him and not of them. Gentiles now can understand the vast riches of Christ and the wisdom of God. They no longer are darkened in their understanding. They're now enlightened so that they have the opportunity to understand what God has done for them. And he's literally describing you and me. God has taken us and given us an understanding of what he's done for us in Christ so that we can praise him for that effort that he has done. And at the end of of chapter 3, God has the power to grant to the Gentiles to know the love of Christ that has done so much for them. Look at verses 20 and 21. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. I love that phrase. <laughs> God can do so much more than we, can, we give him credit for. According to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Paul highlights God's immense love that has shown to the Gentiles through his power. The only way that we're able to understand these truths is by God himself. and God's working in us, and the depth of his love is so wide and vast. It brings John 3.16 out to a whole new light, the depth of love that God has for us. And he is to be praised for all that he has done for us forever and ever. If, if you and I just spend eternity praising God for what, how he's taken dead sinners and made them a part of one new body, that's enough. God has given us life and given us a new family because of what he's done for us in Christ. The fifth question that I want to ask from the book of Ephesians, and I think it answers... Is what does God desire for the church? Now we're, now we're getting, uh, if you're familiar with Paul, uh, Paul writes most of his letters, if not all of his letters, in a simple format. He talks about doctrine or truth first, and then he talks about practical. How, how does this work? How, what does this look like? So what does God desire for the church? He desires that the church live like Christ. Chapters 4 and 5 talk about this, all the way to verse 21 of chapter 5. What does God desire for a church? He desires that the church live like Christ. First, in verses 1 through, 1 through uh, 16 of verse, uh, chapter 4, they, they live unified. They're, they're striving for unity with one another. They, they go through the they experience humility, long-suffering, patient love. Because we all have one God to worship, therefore we should be unified in that effort. Unified and, and be united together. There are too many churches today who are split. Who are not unified. Not walking in unity. Because they're arguing over this thing or that thing. And Paul says to his, his readers the Ephesian church, no, you walk worthy verse 1 of the calling wherewith you are called. Keeping, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the spirit of the to keep this unity of the spirit. In the bond of peace. Believers are also called to exercise their spiritual gifts. That's chapter, uh, verse 7 all the way down to verse 16. Spiritual gifts, we'll get into that in depth. But the whole point of the spiritual gifts is so that we can contribute to the, the work of the church. Spiritual gifts are not le- meant for, uh, for the each individual alone, they are supposed to be used so we can be solidly grounded and minister effectively. Again, there, there are many churches who overemphasize spiritual gifts as some sort of spiritual power. Well, the scriptures do not uh, disregard that; they instead point that spiritual power in another effort, and that is to grow the church. Believers are also walk like the new man. Uh, notice uh, chapter four verse. Uh, this, verse 20, but you have not so learned Christ, but if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man who which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. We're not to act like our old life. We're to act like our new life that is concerned with righteousness and true holiness. And I hope as, as we dig into this section, I hope we see that, that, that our actions should reflect Christ and not the old lifestyle. The new man also reflects the working of the Spirit and this idea of living like Christ. Verses 25 to the end of chapter 4, just talk about, okay, what does life in the Spirit look like? What does Spirit-controlled people look like? They're angry, but they don't sin. They don't steal, but they rather They work. They don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. They put away all evil communication, all evil speaking, and instead they are kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as they have been forgiven in Christ. That is the new man. That is the way God wants us, how God wants us to live. The new man also is about love. Starting chapter 5, Paul says, therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. Live in love. The believers follow God's example for love, and they are not like the unbelievers who do not know how to love correctly. They also walk in light. For once you were darkness, verse 8 of chapter 5, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Be the person who's different. Be the person who is not like the old lifestyle, not like the world around us, which is full of darkness, but instead be light. And and in being light, we expose the works of darkness. Be a wise man, Paul also says. Walk in wisdom. See that you walk, verse 15, chapter 5. See then you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. We are to be wise Believers in Jesus Christ walking in wisdom so that we can, instead of being controlled by outside influences, we are instead controlled by the Spirit and we engage in encouraging communication with one another, singing, making melody in our hearts to the Lord, being thankful and being submissive to everyone in, in the fear of God. So what, 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 is, what does God desire for the church? He desires that we live like Christ. Sixth question I have for us. The book of Ephesians answers for us. What does God desire for relationships in the church? What does God desire for relationships in the church? Answer is, he wants them to reflect their relationship with Christ. At the end of chapter 5, verse 22, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, Paul addresses the different societal functions of the day. He addresses the wives and husbands. He addresses children and parents And he talks to slaves and masters. Each one has their own quirks that they have to deal with. But the ultimate goal is that they reflect their relationship with Christ in those relationships. Wives are submission submitting to their husbands' leadership. Which ironic is ironic, we'll get to this. Interesting, wives have three verses written to them in this section. And if my math is correct, husbands have nine. So, while Paul is concerned with the wife's uh, attitude and, and interaction with her husband, he's more concerned about what the husband's doing than what the woman does. Now, ladies, that does not mean you get off scot free. But there is a serious responsibility laid upon husbands. And we'll get into that. And Paul says in each relationship, you and I are to reflect Christ. The husband loves his wife more than he loves himself puts her in front of himself, leads with authority, but leads lovingly in servant leadership. Children, chapter 6, are to obey their parents in the Lord. That's where it's supposed to happen, in the Lord. Oh, by the way, dads, you're not supposed to provoke your children to wrath. You do not stir up anger with them, but you are to train them in in, in the ways of God. Slaves are to be obedient to their masters. Why? Because they are serving Christ ultimately. And masters are to be kind to their slaves because they serve a greater master who could have been harsh to them but instead loves them in Christ. That is the whole purpose of being like Christ in relationships, that we interact with each other. Why? Because of our relationship with Christ reflects our relationship with each other. Then the last Portion of Ephesians from verses 10 through 24. Last question that this book answers for us. In this introduction, how does the church fight the spiritual battles it faces? Answer, the church fights them with the armor of God. Finally, my brethren, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes of the devil. We're all involved in spiritual warfare, and we need God's armor to fight it. We can't do it by ourselves. 1 Peter 5.8 talks about the devil being this roaring lion, seeking, around, seeking to roam around, seeking whom he may devour. We're involved in a spiritual battle. And Paul says that the armor of God helps to fight that battle. It's his strength that will get us through it. It's his armor that will resist the attacks of the enemy. If you look at the end of verse, uh, let's see, verse 14, stand therefore having girded, or jump back to verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. The armor that God gives us covers every vital part and is for every attack that the devil faces against us. And that is the effort that we are to engage in. And then Paul ends it. He asks for prayers. He asks for, for help. As he fights his own spiritual battle and encourages the church to do so as well. How do we fight the spiritual battles? We fight them with the armor of God. know that's kind of a big, big sermon and I know there was a lot there, and I apologize if it was too much. But brothers and sisters, I want us to see from this book at large that God has a plan for his church. God has a way that he wants his church to interact with each other, with the world, and we are to follow that plan. As, as, as a new pastor and, and getting into this role of everything, I, there's many things that I want us to accomplish, but ultimately I want to follow God's plan. I don't want to go off on my own tangent and do my own thing and, and lead us in another direction outside of what God has for us. So as we embrace what this book has to say to us in the coming weeks and months, let us remember that God has a plan for the church. And let's embrace it. Let's take it on wholeheartedly. And we'll be amazed at what God will do. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time we can embrace your plan for the church. May it be a desire of us to follow your leading for us as a church so that we can become more and more like Christ. May our hearts be challenged by this truth. May we live this out for others to see. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.